All right, we are live. <clears throat> this is part 44 of the verse-by-verse -verse study through the Gospel of Mark. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and today we are um, dealing with a passage that I think gives us a very interesting, something I don't want us to miss, a parallel between the first century religious leaders and the modern Roman Catholic Church's claims. But I'm trying to do this in a way, people's... Um, emotions get high when this issue comes up. And so what I'm going to ask is that we we try to take our time with this, right? This is this is an observation that I think is very important, but it's done in the context of a verse by verse study through a text. And so we're going to try to take it soberly and thoughtfully and point by point. So this is one super interesting issue that I think we should not miss. I think it does give us a pattern uh, that sort of demonstrates something like it's something similar to Sola Scriptura, that, that sort of reformed teaching about the scripture, but it might be a little, actually a little more broad than that. And it, it might be more like Sola uh, Uranus or something. I just went to the Greek because I don't even know what the Latin is for, if it, but like a only heaven <laughs> kind of command. Anyway, I'll explain more as we go. And this is um, Mark 11 verses 27 through 33. That's the passage we're in. Let's just dig in. You guys know how this works. If you're a first time person here, you know, this is what this is what we do. We do verse by verse studies. We do thoughtful, um, topical issues, covering it from a biblical perspective, helping you learn to think biblically about everything. And the whole playlist for the entire Mark series, which I am loving so much, and many of you are too. It's just like meat for you know, giving you protein for your spirit kind of thing. And um, and it's all available in the playlist in the video description if you want to have that. So here we go. Uh, full disclosure, I have not slept enough the past couple days. So forgive me if I'm a little bit uh, disconnected. <laughs> but I'm going to do my best. So Mark eleven twenty seven. it says, They came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, this is Jesus walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And then here's Jesus's question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people. This is Mark's commentary, you know, inspired commentary on the topic. Uh, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, eh, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <clears throat> this passage is actually a good example of why we have to actually study the Bible and you can't just casually read it and think that you'll understand everything in it. Uh, don't get me wrong. There's a lot you will understand just casually reading. And there's a massive benefit in just plowing through huge portions of scripture or just listening on audio to the whole book of whatever, you know, you name it, Deuteronomy or something. But there's this huge need for also careful verse by verse study. Um, and it's something that all of us must do, you know, and that's <clears throat> what we're going to be doing today. You just won't understand the dynamics. You won't know who came to Jesus, why these three groups come to Jesus, what they represent. Why is this significant? Why does Jesus ask them about John the Baptist? How does that tie in to answering their question? Is Jesus just juking people or is he actually, is he actually doing something even more clever than that? Although it does involve him juking these guys. I mean, that's just a reality of the situation. So <clears throat> then I want you to notice the similarities between Roman Catholicism, modern Roman Catholicism, and the ancient 
um, Sanhedrin or this group of the Pharisees in particular, these people that were leading Israel. Now, this is not because I, I need to say this. If you're thinking, oh, Pharisees, religious hypocrites, Roman Catholicism, religious hypocrites. That's actually not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. And so I, I hope that you'll, you'll patiently hear this out and understand it carefully. I think this comparison between the Sanhedrin and between the Pharisees and Roman Catholicism is something actually that Roman Catholic apologists do all the time. They often will say, I've heard it a number of times, hey, just like the, the these religious leaders in Jesus' day, they sat in the seat of Moses, meaning they have like the, the continuation of the role of Moses. This is their interpretation, not mine. Then so the, um, the Pope and the bishops in agreement with him, not all Catholics, just the Pope and those who agree with him, the, they sit in the seat or the chair of Peter and the continuation of his authority. So the, the parallels made by Catholic apologists, I'm just going to draw it out a little further. So Mark 11, verses 27 through 33, how on earth can I relate this to Catholicism? You shall see, and I think it's going to be rewarding for those of us that are interested in a thoughtful, careful analysis of stuff. I'm not just going to give you a, a talking point. All right, verse 27, let's look at this again. We're going to look at it verse by verse, and God give us wisdom and insight and understanding into his word. Let it change our lives. Mark eleven twenty-seven. 27, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, notice the groups, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. So this, this is significant already. The first thing you should notice, even if you don't know anything about first century history, like as you're doing your little, your study, you're, you're sort of, I'm studying the Bible here. One of the first things I do is I read a passage. I try to understand it just kind of broadly. And then I go back to the individual verses and I start just writing down questions. Huh? Why are there three groups? Is there, is there significance to chief priests, scribes, and elders? These three groups, is there significance to that? And the answer is yes, without getting into a ton of detail. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders make up a specific group called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is like a Jewish Supreme Court in the first century. That's basically what they are. And their main base of operations is Jerusalem. So Jesus is on their turf in Jerusalem. He, you know, after ministering primarily in Galilee and other locations, he's now confronted them in the temple. He's overturned the tables. He's driven people out. And these people are like the bosses as far as Jews are concerned, they're the highest court of the land. And they're sending their representatives, the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. That's your trigger term, seeing these three put together. This is the Sanhedrin. This is a delegation of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, the whole group was like 70, 71 people. And these guys, uh, they would gather together and they would make judgments on all sorts of things. They had massive power in Israel. Later on in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin when they condemn him for blasphemy and then they take him to Pilate trying to get Pilate to kill him. So this is the group Jesus is soon going to stand before. These are some of their delegates. These are some of the guys that will be in the room when Jesus is condemned not very many days after this event here. Now in 200 BC, go back before Christ, you know, 200 years, there's actually even uh, more power in this group, the Sanhedrin. They have, they're, they're the final court of the land. They're extremely, extremely powerful. Let me, let me put it this way. They can kill you with their power, right? Like they could say, you are guilty of such and such and your sentence is death. And then they put you to death. This is not the limit of their power though. Probably something even more powerful in all reality is that they could give rulings on biblical interpretation because they weren't just a political group. 
right? Religion and politics were very much mingled in the past. And for the most of human history and in most of our nations in the past, religion and politics have always been mingled. There isn't this separation going on. And so they're, they're a religious body. They're a spiritual governing body for Israel. So when they have a question about the law, you could take that to the Sanhedrin and then they could make a judgment on the interpretation and application of the law. So they refer to themselves as effectively being God's um, living interpretation, you know, body of authority, which if you understand Roman Catholicism, you already understand why some of these parallels are going to be pretty striking and eerie, actually. <clears throat> now, when, when the Romans took over Jerusalem and took over not just Jerusalem, but Israel in general, and then Israel became like a nation in subjection, the highest court of their land didn't have as much power anymore. And so this, this group, the Sanhedrin, they lost some powers. In particular, they lost the power to put someone to death. So they eventually lost that ability. They can no longer put people to death. This is why, like in John 18, 31, they, they decide they want to kill Jesus, this court. But then they can't do it, so they take him to Pilate, and they're like, Pilate, you're the Roman governor. You have the power to put people to death. Kill him. We're asking in our official representative role as the Sanhedrin, we want you to, to, to execute this man. And Jesus, uh, Pilate doesn't want to do it. But in, in, they finagle it and they make it happen by making an issue between Jesus and Caesar and the kingship and all that kind of thing. All that kind of thing. So this is this is a ability they lost. According to the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, which I look at as a historical source, um, although a lot of the writing in the Talmud comes a good deal after the first century. But according to them, it was about 40 years before the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70, when they lost the power to put people to death, when the Sanhedrin lost that ability. So highest court of the land, very big deal. The Sanhedrin, the chief prescribes and Pharisees in verse 27, this is who they are. And this means something new is happening in Jesus's ministry. You see, he's had conflicts with religious leaders. He's had conflicts with Pharisees. He's even had conflicts with like a delegation, right, of scribes who came and said they were from Jerusalem. But this is different because this Sanhedrin group, they had influence in Galilee, but they didn't have authority in Galilee officially. But in Jerusalem, they rule the day. These guys are in charge, right? They're the ones that Jesus is, in their view, Jesus is accountable to them. They are a, a religious and political authority. So this is kind of a big deal. This is, this is, the tension is high. This is the part of the, if, you're, if it was a movie, this is where like the anxiety inducing music comes up is when this, these group of people come over to talk to Jesus. It's like, a, it's like a cop comes up to you, pulls you over and he says to you something like, why were you going that fast? You know, and there, the, the implication is because I have the authority to put the smack down on you. And that's kind of what they're doing when they come to him and they ask him this question. So Jesus is on their turf now. He's not in Galilee. He's in Jerusalem. He's in their place of authority. He just cleansed the temple. He's kind of made them mad. And now they're coming to him to cause trouble. So let's look at the question that they ask him in verse 28. <clears throat> and began saying to him, here's what they say. And, and they say it as a group. The chief prescribes and the Pharisees together as a group. This again affirms that this is really a delegation of the Sanhedrin, the, the, the ruling body. By what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do these things? What, what's your authority? Uh, now, they're not just curious, okay? They're not just curious about Jesus. They're, they're trying to get him in trouble. They're trying to cause problems. We're going we're gonna to talk in a second here about what their goals might have been for asking this question. And I think I have two reasons why they probably were asking it that I think seem like they're very accurate. But what are the things they're upset about? Um, 
by what authority, Jesus, are you doing these things? Well, they're probably not talking about the teachings of Jesus because they ask about what he's doing, not what he's teaching. They're probably not talking about him doing miracles because this would be something that they would not want to ask his opinion on. <laughs> How? What's your authority for doing miracles? Oh, God. Um, no, no. They, they want to ask by what authority he is coming into the temple and he's overturning tables and he's driving people out and he's releasing birds into the air and he's basically taking over their realm of authority. They're like, where's your authority for this coming from? So that's that's what this is about. This is about the cleansing of the temple. This is this is the thing that's triggered this question. Now, why are they asking the question? Um, again, they're not just curious. I think they have two reasons. One is intimidation and the other is to get ammunition against Jesus. Uh, we get this all the time. The world asks us questions that are not, they don't care about the real answers. They, they want to get ammunition to use against you. Okay, this is something humans do to humans all the time. So the intimidation part, um, now we know Jesus won't back down. Okay, so we miss this. We don't realize that this this body of authoritative and, and get this, we sometimes think the Pharisees were these like jerks and losers. They were extremely well respected. They were heroes of the time. The people looked up to them very, very much. They were effectively like a celebrity who was seen as being like a noble and and someone you would aspire to become. Okay, so this this group, the Sanhedrin, they're they're actually in many ways very highly respected, and they come to him with authority and respect, and then they're intimidating him. I know Jesus won't back down, but guess what? You might, you might back down when you're confronted by people who you respect and who have authority, who are pushing back against your Christian beliefs and your Christian stance on different issues. And I think that there's a principle we're going to learn here. We'll get more into it later, but the basic principle is that when you're obeying God. When you know that what you're doing is from God, you don't need man's permission. Now, you can get, you'll, you, some people will get weird about this because they'll have all sorts of ideas. God's telling me this, but they, maybe he's not telling him that. The clearest stuff we know from the Lord is what's in scripture. And when I know I'm following what God has revealed, I really don't need to worry about what mankind is, is saying, even authorities. And this is something that the persecuted church has had to always understand and move forward, forward in. But we sometimes think of the Christian persecuted church like they just um, inevitably and always obey, like they always have spines. But that's not really the truth. There's plenty who actually buckle, who actually get fearful and back off in the face of the confrontation of the society and of the culture. And our modern way of doing this is we back off, but we do it because we feel we're not being loving which is usually a distortion of what it means to be loving. An understandable distortion. People aren't like intentionally distorting things. They just aren't thinking right about stuff. So the, the bottom line here is as a Christian, you have to have a strong spine. You have to have a strong spine. And we can go wrong in this. Um, we can spiritualize actions that are not from God. I'll tell you a quick story. I, I knew a guy who, who quit a job and then he was unemployed for a significant period of time and he didn't have money and he was collecting unemployment. And, um, and then I guess the unemployment was running out. And so he'd been unemployed for quite a while. And when I asked him why he quit the job, I was like, what happened to your previous job? Because he'd had it for quite a while. And he said that he, he felt God told him he could quit. He should quit. And I was like, wow, okay. I mean, I'm open to that idea. But when he described why, he said that the thing is he'd be at work and he was at some sort of retail uh, store and he heard secular music. And the secular music bothered him so much that he felt like God was telling him he could quit to get away from the secular music. Now, I'm skeptical of that. <laughs> um, this is probably 
there's, I, I'm imagining that if I was to press, I would find out that there were also interpersonal problems where he was upset with the boss or there were other issues going on and that this was not from the Lord, most likely. Um, this was something came from his heart, it, it, just to be honest. So I, I think we can go wrong. We can spiritualize things, but we still have to have, we have to have spines. And on some issues, we can feel pretty confident about what the Lord's revealing to us, like the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Okay, this isn't like me getting a weird feeling here. This is clear teaching from God's inspired word. The teaching of what scripture says on topics like abortion or homosexuality, these things are in the cost for holding these teachings is getting higher and higher in our culture, but the teachings are very clear. And so Christians have to have spines. Now, what we don't need is angry Christians. And this is what I think we sometimes see to find the balance. I want to point this out. Sometimes what we see is we see Christians that are so angry that they're triggered by anger and irritation to finally speak up on issues. And so to the public, we have quiet Christians who, if they did speak, they might do so very well and eloquently and thoughtfully and carefully, but they're just lacking spine and courage. Then we have angry Christians who aren't speaking out of spine, but out of spite. And then you go online and what you see sometimes is an overwhelming example of irritable people who are speaking um, in tone-deaf ways to the culture. And we need to defy that stereotype, but be the Christians with spines. And people won't like you. And that's part of it. So Jesus, his, his response to intimidation is to just keep doing what he knows God wants him to do. And that's a good example for us. The second thing that, <clears throat> the second reason, the second like, uh, purpose of this question, again, it's not for information, it's for ammunition. They want a reason to accuse Jesus and to get him into trouble. Jesus has been pretty clever. As we read in the Gospel of Mark, and something I've, you know, scholars make a big deal about the messianic secret in Mark, and why is it that Jesus isn't more open about his messianic mission? <clears throat> why is it that he doesn't uh, speak super plainly? And and in, in some, he, he speaks it, he speaks it very boldly, but not, it's clever. What Jesus does is clever. Early in his ministry, up until the last moment, he speaks in, in somewhat veiled language where you have to understand what he's saying to get his point. He's not totally clear. Now, this totally changes at the end of his ministry and then, and then the apostles, they don't do this at all. This is a temporary measure. And part of the reason is so that his the people who want to kill him won't have ammunition to use against him. So they're looking to get the ammo when they ask the question, by what authority do you do these things? They want his answer to be something like, God himself has commanded me. And then they can say, blasphemer, because they're the religious authority. And then they can try to uh, use that against him. And so they're looking for a, use, a reason to accuse him and get him into trouble. And this is why Jesus is careful with how he answers. When he, when he answers them, it's super clever. And we'll get into that in just a second. But I do just want to point out, for those who think that, oh, well, um, Jesus is veiled in his... Um, his teaching about who he is and why he's come in some occasions in Mark, does that mean that he was never clear? Well, that's this is not true. We can look at Mark 14, verse 61 and 62, when Jesus is standing before the exact same group of guys, but just all of them. He's now before the whole Sanhedrin. And the high priest pushes him and says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus straight up says, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven, which to the Jewish mind, they know, is an appeal to this Daniel's, in the, in the book of Daniel, this Son of Man figure who receives worship from all people, which is, which is why they then respond, see, now we can kill you. You're, you're, you're wicked and you're blasphemous because uh, he's open about his claims and they don't believe them. 
So Jesus is open. It, it's just that he does it. And then five seconds later, he gets crucified. So here he's being very clever. So let's examine Jesus's response. We understand the question. We understand why they're doing it. We understand what they're trying to accomplish. Let's look at Jesus's response, which is very clever. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now, this might seem weird that Jesus is like, I hear your question and now I'll ask you a question. Um, but this is actually not that uncommon uh, from the commentaries I've been reading on this stuff. Rabbis asked questions in response to questions on a regular basis. This is not considered a strange thing. And their questions they would ask were frequently used to give the answer. But the problem is that when you ask a question that even, even though your answer is embedded in your, in your second question to their question, right? Even when you do that, the problem is that your answer isn't like the kind of thing I could put you on trial for. It's just not clear enough. There's, there's too much wiggle room there. And that's what makes this actually very wise. So Jesus gives them a question. And what I'm saying is his question answers them. Here's how it answers them. He asked them about John the Baptist. Okay, the baptism of John. Now, John the Baptist, his, his whole emphasis in his ministry was to point to the Messiah, was to get the people to repent, get their hearts right with God, and prepare the way for the Messiah. Because the idea in ancient Israel is that when the Messiah comes, it's super important that the people of Israel have hearts that are ready to receive him so that they would be able to benefit and enter into that Messianic kingdom, which is still a truth today. And, and so when he talks about the baptism of John, he's talking about a guy whose whole ministry was about telling you that Jesus is, is legit. That right there is part of how he's answering the question. But then he only gives them two options on what to do with John's baptism. He says, is it from heaven or is it from men? And I think this is almost a passive aggressive kind of a, kind of a thing that Jesus is doing here. Look, let's look at these two options. Is it from heaven or is it from men? If it's from heaven, if John's baptism is from heaven, well, to say it's from heaven is problematic because it means it means not only that John was honestly and rightly telling you who Jesus is, but it means something else. It means that the Sanhedrin and their religious role, which I'll talk more about in a, in a few minutes, their authority that they claim isn't necessary. This is huge because John didn't come from the Sanhedrin. He didn't get approval by the Sanhedrin. He didn't get any sort of um, of, of affirmation or legitimacy or permission from the religious leadership of the time. And because Jesus says, was it from heaven or from men? He's, he's, he's acting like there's this, there's this sort of sola heaven. <laughs> there's this heavenly authority. That means that no authority on earth is going to be able to claim that role to be able to dictate what people should and shouldn't believe and who can be this role and that role and all that kind of thing. Is that, is that the role of the Sanhedrin, I'm still talking about, the Sanhedrin here, not Roman Catholicism, but that they're just overestimating their role. The other option he gives is that it's from men. Was it from heaven or from men? And this is subtly undercutting their own authority because they're in the category of men. And and he, he really derides them for this. We get this right with the Pharisees where he says, you teach the traditions of men as though they are the commands of God. So there's just this whole category of, no, you're just people. You're just people. Your organization is not carrying the authority of heaven that you think it is. Right? You have a responsibility from heaven, but you don't have the authority of heaven. And that is actually the balanced view, I think. So he's undercutting them because they think that Jesus has to get his authority from the Sanhedrin. They, you know, he doesn't. And neither did John the Baptist. They're just men, no matter what role they claim. 
Now let me talk for a few minutes about the role the Sanhedrin claimed. And now you'll see why I'm trying to parallel this to the modern uh, Roman Catholic claims. And I'm not doing this like, uh, <laughs> here's my snide little, little jab. Uh, I actually think that what we're getting here, here's my theory on, on the New Testament in particular, but all of, all of scripture, but most of the heresies or false teachings or potential problems, and those were all different issues, right? Heresies, false teachings, and potential problems, or most of these things are, are confronted in some form in the New Testament. So when you hear like a new Trinitarian heresy, it's always already been addressed in the Bible. You just have to go find where it is. It's as though God, I say it's as though, but God has foreseen all of the errors and failings and problems that would arise in the in the history of mankind. And he has embedded in his word responses and answers and guidance for those issues. What I'm saying, and what I'm about to try to unpack for you, is that the way Jesus interacts with the religious leaders of his time, it's not me saying, oh, see, Roman Catholics are hypocrites. No, that's, that's childish and it's not at all my point. Um, it's a way of saying, look, Jesus interacts with something that's kind of like a first century mirror image of Roman Catholicism. And the way that he treats the claims these guys have is the way that we can treat the claims of the Roman Catholic magisterium, a term you need to understand that I will explain in a few minutes. First, let's deal with this. The Sanhedrin, who did they think they were? Well, they had several claims. Um, they Remember they had like 70-ish leaders? And they claimed that their 70, that their leaders came from Moses' leaders in the Old Testament when he had 70 leaders that represented all of the people of Israel. So they claimed that they had like a elder succession. And remember that word succession. It's one of the reasons why they, why they would kind of like produce... Uh, proofs of the legitimacy of their hyper authority claims because they claim way more authority than they ever truly had you know being like religiously we interpret the bible officially kind of role well th this is this is partially connected to their claim that they descended directly from moses's 70. now this is not a true claim and nobody really thinks this is true but it's a claim that developed over time where they said like hey you know here's our connection with moses so that we can kind of have the same authority that they had under moses they also claim more than that so succession elder succession is one thing they claimed remember that succession second thing they claimed is we'll just call it moses's seat they claim to sit in Moses' seat. We get this in Matthew 23, where Jesus says that the, the, the Pharisees, the teachers, that you need to listen to them because they sit in Moses' seat. Jesus actually affirmed that they really sat in Moses' seat. But you're like, what does that mean? Sit in Moses' seat. It's not just about a physical chair or seat. It's about a, a seat of power. You know, like a king has a throne and the throne represents his power. And generations later, someone else is sitting in that throne because they have that same power. When they say, I sit in Moses' seat, what they meant was that they were getting their current authority from Moses. So it put them up far above all the people and having the ability to tell you what God is saying about issues. In particular, with interpretation. They would bring interpretation. Now, again, Jesus affirms that they actually did sit in Moses' seat. Although I think Jesus' interpretation of what that means is different than theirs. They think it means we have power. And I think Jesus looks at it and says, it means you have responsibility not power. There's a big difference. Responsibility and power are not the same thing. Teachers have a responsibility to proclaim the truth. They do not have the power to proclaim the truth, to tell you what's true. Just a responsibility to echo what's true and get it across in a way people can understand it. <laughs> now, many Roman Catholic apologists 
will actually appeal to Matthew 23, where Jesus affirms that the Pharisees, that they sit in the seat of Moses. And they'll say, see, there's like a legitimacy to sitting in the seat of Moses, just like there's a Roman Catholic claim that we sit in the seat of Peter, that we get our authority from Peter. Not just we, but the Pope in particular gets his authority from Peter. I just think that they leave their claim short. They don't follow the parallel out fully to realize Jesus didn't care that they sat in the seat of Moses. And I shouldn't care if you sit in the seat of Peter because I'm going to follow Jesus. It just means you have an, a, a responsibility, not an authority. This is a different claim than what many would think I'm saying. So hear me freshly. If you've, if you've just heard a lot of, say, non-Catholics, like just talk about Catholicism, don't, don't project onto me, por favor. Um, that's Southern Californian for, uh, please. All right. The, um, uh, the, the response to Jesus of Jesus about them sitting in the seat of Moses, where he tells them, you know, you know, how he responds to Sanhedrin. He's like, uh, you know, listen to what they say because they're, 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 they're sharing what Moses said, but don't do what they do. But then he goes on to add more to this, right? Mark seven. I want to read this to you. Mark seven verses eight and nine. And I do think this is a perfect parallel with modern Roman Catholicism in, 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 in many ways. He says, <clears throat> of these same people who sit in Moses' seat, he says, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the, to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So they have traditions that actually conflict with some of the teachings of scripture. And they get really good at getting around what the Bible says in order to keep affirming their traditions. And this is just a perfect parallel with modern Roman Catholicism. The whole idea of the priesthood, the whole idea of the papacy, the, the, the sacramental theology, the, um, the, the concept, just lots of specific teachings and concepts that are within modern Roman Catholicism are not not only not in the Bible, but in several cases, they're conflicting with scripture and they just get really good at spinning their way and doing backflips around the Bible in order to try to affirm the different theologies that are there. And it's just like them. So don't say if I sit in the chair of Peter, then I therefore have full authority to tell you these things. It's like, hey, well, those who sat in the seat of Moses, Jesus just rebuked them. So your chair of Peter claim doesn't mean what you think it means, even if it's true. This is kind of a big deal, but there's more. Um, the Roman Catholic claims aren't don't aren't just about the chair of Peter. So just like the Sanhedrin, they hold up their authority by saying we have succession from Moses, right? We go from Moses down to us in, in unbroken succession, and therefore we're here. They also claimed we sit in Moses' seat. We talked about that. Then they also claim, they also claim that they have something called oral law or oral tradition. And these are and this is so eerie how similar this is to Roman Catholicism, but they claim that they have succession, Moses' seat, and oral tradition, which is unwritten records that they have in, in, in their somewhere floating around in, in, in their minds. These are unwritten, but they, they have them remembered. And these are things that Moses commanded that, he, that were just never written down. And you have to go to them to find out what Moses commanded. So basically they can have a authority that's equal to scripture that has content scripture doesn't have that they claim comes from Moses originally. Now, nobody thinks that their actual oral law comes from Moses. Like historically speaking, when you compare the things that they say are part of the, the law of Moses, it's clear that these didn't come from Moses. It's very clear. Now, why do I parallel this with Roman Catholicism? Okay, well, here's the Pope and the, and the Catholic magisterium is basically the Pope and whoever happens to agree with him. So if, if every... Uh, bishop in the Catholic Church comes out and says, 
um, we, we, we don't really believe this anymore or we believe this new thing, but the Pope disagrees, it doesn't count, right? Because if you have to agree with the Pope or nothing, and nothing's official. And nothing's, nothing's infallible, you know, dogma that everyone has to believe. And if the Pope comes out and he proclaims something as dogma that everyone has to believe, and then all the bishops disagree with him, guess what? It's still Catholic dogma. Because that's the power of the Pope. The bishops are important, but they're not essential in, in Roman Catholicism as much as just the Pope is. So, so this is about his power. And he claims that, that him and the other bishops, that they come from succession, apostolic succession from Peter till today, that the apostles appointed heirs or people who would take over their jobs and then those people appointed someone else and someone else. And that goes all the way down till today in the Roman Catholic Church. In particular, Peter appointed someone, Linus, to take over his job as Pope. And then Linus appointed someone else to take over his job as Pope. And that continued until today where we have the modern Roman Catholic Pope. So they claim succession. They claim succession. Now, biblically, succession is really just the apostles appointing elders, not other apostles. They're appointing elders and, and that's it. And they're just elders. The, the role, that apostolic role just doesn't continue. But that's the claim of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so it's, it's, it's not an accurate claim, but it's a claim and it's how they, base, how they establish their authority. So yeah, you can say, you know, genealogically, um, every Christian is going to come back to uh, the apostles, right? But we're just saying there isn't a papacy that goes back all the way to the first century. Um, that just isn't reality. And I'm going to do videos on that in the future, more video content on that. It's probably quite a ways out because it's a lot of historical research. So the succession claim is identical, right? The Sanhedrin claims succession from Moses. The papacy claims succession from Peter. The Sanhedrin claims they sit in the seat of Moses and therefore they have this authority. The papacy says we, the, the Pope sits in the chair of Peter, right? The authority of Peter, and therefore he has authority. Except Jesus' response to the seat of Moses is, that just means you have responsibility, not authority. You have a responsibility to echo what Moses says, and you're blowing it. You're adding your traditions. I rebuke you. And I think we can respond the same way to the modern papacy that has added massive, provably added massive amounts of tradition that are not biblical and in, in many cases um, unbiblical, like they go against scripture. And then finally, they claim this oral tradition, right? The, the, the Sanhedrin claims that they have this oral tradition that comes from Moses and is handed down. It just wasn't written down for many, many years. And we can prove that it's not the case, actually. Well, the Roman Catholic Church claims to have oral tradition. And this oral tradition is something that's not written down. Like, you can't just point to something and go, that's the oral tradition. It's just said to, like, seep out in the various councils and proclamations of the Roman Catholic Church. It's difficult because you can't point to the tradition in one spot. You could just point to like the canons of the councils and say, okay, and it gets complicated and confusing because Catholicism is complicated and confusing. But they're claiming that this stuff is stimming, even though it doesn't connect to scripture in a direct way. The Bible's not teaching it. Yet it goes back to the apostles, trust us. So the idea that Peter was the first pope, everyone knew that. The apostles taught that, right? The idea that Rome was the center of the religious authority of Christendom, everyone knew that. Everyone knew that. But when I go back to history, they, everyone didn't know that. Like, this is just a slowly evolving, developing idea. You know, initially, there is no single pope in Rome. He's not even, there isn't even a single bishop over the whole city, let alone over all of Christendom. Around 150, we start to get a bishop over the whole city who's starting to flex influence, not even total power, just influence, right, beyond Rome. And eventually, you know, you keep going, you know, to, uh, 150 years after Jesus, now you're starting to get one guy who's starting to make these bold claims about authority that he has everywhere. And slowly, 
that eventually turns into a real authority. And as it flexes, that's when the Eastern Church just breaks off. And they're like, you're making stuff up. We're out of here. And um, that's the real history of it. So just like the Sanhedrin, the Pope is claiming a, a connection to the apostles that isn't real. A, just like they connect, claimed a connection to Moses that wasn't real. A, a authoritative seat that can't mean what they think it means because it would just be responsibility and not actual authority. Responsibility to teach the truth and not authority to declare truth. And they're claiming an oral, unwritten, you know, body of information that goes back to the apostles and is authoritative, but we can prove it doesn't. So Jesus rejects the Sanhedrin and I think he would reject the papacy. And I think he'd rebuke the papacy, not just for being a false authority. I think that he, there's a sense in which it's a legitimate authority. It's just not the authority they think it is. It's just, look, you here you stand. You stand upon right, the foundation that was built, but you're building something different. And you're even replacing some pieces of the foundation. And so there's a rebuke that's there. There's a responsibility more than an authority. And that, I think, is the reality of the situation with the papacy. Now, modern Roman Catholicism pushes the Pope like he's just a loving father and everyone should just be embracing him because he's so loving and inspiring and kind. But they don't realize, like, people don't realize, central to the very existence of the papacy are all of these authority claims. And if they're not true, it'd be like a guy coming into your home and saying, I'm your papa, I love you. And you're like, but wait, you're not my dad. And he goes, oh, don't worry about whether it's legitimate or not. Like, I love you. I want to hug you and cook you grilled cheese sandwiches. And I don't care. I, I want to know if you belong here first. You know, however nice you are as the Pope, you got to be legit before it matters. Because niceness isn't that important. Okay. So anyhow, um, let's talk about Jesus's answer and how he jukes these guys. The juke is pretty subtle and pretty profound. And we're going to uh, look at it where he says, oh, let me get back to the passage. Jesus says, oh, and just a reminder, uh, I mentioned I was going to cover Mark eleven twenty six 26 and how it's in brackets and all that. I felt like it just didn't fit in today's study. So I'm going to do an individual video real soon, probably within a couple days, just a quick summary of what's up with Mark eleven twenty six. 26. That's coming on my channel soon. So Jesus is like, hey, was John's baptism from heaven or from men? Answer me. So Jesus gives a subtle, in this, he gives a subtle but profound affirmation of who he is. It's subtle and profound where his authority is from. Because either it's from men or from heaven. It's going to be the same. The answer to Jesus is the same as the answer to John. And this is juking them because guess what it means? It means Sanhedrin, I don't need your authority. You have overestimated your role. You have a responsibility to teach the truth of God's word. You do not have the authority claims that you think you have. And the problem, the reason why this is a juke though, is how do you convict Jesus in court for just asking a question about John? Like you can't, like this is just subtle and clever. And I think there's an application for us. Sometimes Christians, when you're asked trap questions like this, you don't answer straight. Um, not to be deceptive, but to be clever, okay? To be thoughtful, to be wise about what's going on. And this is a trap I've fallen into where you just keep asking answers straight, 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 and you realize they don't care about the straight answer. And when you're, when you're, when the person you're talking with doesn't care about the right answer, doesn't care about the true answer, they're just trying to trick you. That's when you start to think about clever, still true, but clever answers. For instance, I was at a uh, public school preaching the gospel on campus at a public school in California, believe it or not, during uh, a lunchtime. Uh, and I'd asked the students to interact. It's much easier to get interaction than just to preach at them. So I said, hey, um, 
you know, who can ask me the best question? I'm a Christian pastor. Hit me with the best question you can. Whoever gives you the best question, I'll give you 10 bucks. And this girl raises her hand. She goes, I have a question. Why does Jesus hate gay people? And I thought, she's getting the 10 bucks. <laughs> that was a good question. I'm definitely giving it to her. And, and um, now the, the simple answer is, well, he doesn't. That's not true. Right? But is that going to help her understand what's wrong with her trap question? And the answer is not really. I need to make her think more deeply about this. And so um, I think this was wisdom. And I, I asked her, would you ever die for somebody you hated? And she said, what? And I said, well, just answer me and I'll answer you. Like, would you ever die for someone you hated? And she goes, no, never. And I'll say, well, did Jesus die for gay people? Yeah. Well, then maybe you're misunderstanding the issues. Maybe this is about love. Maybe this is about God's love, both in dying for them and in saying, you've been led down a misaligned path for your life. And then that changes things. And then that, that causes you know, people to reconsider their assumptions a little bit. So we get these trap questions all the time. Uh, someone says, who are you to judge? And your answer could be like, well, I'm not judging. I'm just trying to, or some judgment's good and proper. And maybe instead you should ask something like, are you judging me? And make them think about it, right? No, I'll answer you, but first let me ask you this. Why are you judging me? Or maybe you say, would you say that to God? Would you say to God, who are you to judge? Or can God judge? And if they say God can't judge, and they say, so you're judging God? You, and, and you start to challenge their presuppositions so that you can get underneath their rebellion against the truth of God in these areas. Someone says, How, why, were you, why would you say a Muslim, a good Muslim can't go to heaven? And, and you just want to ask and say, well, what do you mean by good? Right? So this is this is not just a straight answer. It's a question that it provokes thought on the on the um, presupposition that they have. All right, let's look at their answer. Their answer is in verse thirty-one, and they begin reasoning among themselves, saying, "If if we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him?" This is because John taught that Jesus was the Messiah, right? He he's he's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. But shall we say from men? Which is obviously what they really believe. They think John's stuff was from men, but they don't want to say it out loud. Why? Right? Because they're afraid of the people. For everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. So they get it. They actually get what Jesus is getting at. They understand what's going on. He's not hiding something from them. He's just not giving them something they can use as ammo. That's all. And they're afraid of people. And this, of course, is a plague of leadership. Is to become fearful of people. We have to have firm convictions. As Christians, maybe you're a Christian leader. Um, this is something that I, I will say I've... I understand the struggle here. And I think the struggle increases the higher up in leadership you become. We need to have firm convictions that don't shift when we get a following. And this is true for me too, right? Like when my channel has a, a, a 500 subscribers, it's like, who cares what I say, you know? But I have all these subscribers and I get massive feedback every time I produce a video like the one I'm doing today. I have to be a man of firm conviction. I have to be someone who's not just angry. Firm conviction, people think is like anger or something. But it's it's just knowing that I'm in the lane of truth that God has laid out. And staying in that lane, regardless of what eggs get thrown up my car. Okay? That's the idea. This gets harder and harder in our social media times. I mean, how many of you have thought, man, this is, is the thing I want to post on social media. It's true. And it's needful. I have a gracious and thoughtful way of sharing it. But I just still don't want it because I just don't want to deal with the fallout. That's the kind of time when we need spine, when we need courage and the courage of our convictions. But I think some Christian leaders, they bend far too much to this kind of thing. They're afraid of the people. They fear the people and they bend. Um, oh, look, you just got to see the live stream. Hey, look, this is you guys, by the way. 
There you are in the live chat. See, this is really live. <laughs> anyway, um, so some Christian leaders, they bend far too much to this. And I think Christians um, sometimes, let me talk about the congregation. Sometimes you cause this problem a little bit for your own leaders because you make it too important for your pastors to be likable. And what I mean is this. I do want to be able to bring someone to my church and they're a non-believer and then they can sit underneath the teaching of my pastor and that they can hear him. Like it matters to me that they hear him, that I'm not like embarrassed that I brought my friend to church. I understand that. But some aspects of Christianity are simply embarrassing when it comes to the way the world responds. And I, I want my pastor to speak truth on those issues. I want him to be bold and honest and open and uncompromised and all that kind of stuff. This is a huge deal. This is really important. And I, as a, as a congregant, I want to try to talk to my pastor in ways that encourage and empower him to have a spine and they don't just try to influence him with public disgrace. Public disgrace is like, I'm just going to voice how irritated I am at this leader and then he's going to bend, you know, a, at least a little bit every time irritated voice, voices come at him. So the way we communicate to our leadership needs to be one of not just saying, here's what bugs me about what you're doing, but rather, here is the spine that I'm encouraging you to have. That's it's a different approach, and it, and it changes the way that you write on a card, right? And by the way, if you, if you give pastors, you write on a card and send it to them in, or send a message in anonymously to pastors, they'll probably ignore it, right? Because you didn't have the courage of your own convictions <laughs> to put your name on it. That's true. But, uh, but we do need to encourage them. We just... We just have to like encourage them to have spines and not be developing in them a cowering to angry crowds because that's something that a Christian leader can't do. So some Christian leaders are really bad at this and they actually get, the bigger the church is, the better they often get at pleasing large crowds where they have double answers, where they answer, they answer so this crowd and that crowd are both happy with me, where they're afraid to take a stand on controversial or difficult issues because people will get upset. Now, I'm afraid to take a stand on certain issues because I don't know the right answer on those issues. So I'm afraid, that's the only reason. But if I'm afraid to take a stand because people will get mad at me, that's where I'm abandoning some responsibility here. So pleasing man is a very serious vice. Becoming likable, being a, a man pleaser is a very serious vice. And, and the number one thing I've heard pastors admit to as far as personal struggles of sin, the number one thing, it's, it's not lust, it's not pride, it's not um, laziness, uh, shirking their duties, bitterness towards their congregants, which are all quite real possibilities. The number one thing they'll admit to in conversations I've had is I'm a people pleaser. Dare I say, that is one of the worst, one of the worst, because that one will water down your responsibility to teach the truth of God in a controversial culture. So we've got to know the, know the scripture and stand on it and speak the truth uh, out of spine and not out of spite. So yeah, finally, finally, the people answer. <clears throat> the, the Sanhedrin delegates, they give their answer and it's in verse 33, our last verse for today. And Jesus, answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. We don't know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The irony here is that they are afraid of the crowd, so they won't answer the question. And because they won't, don't want to get in trouble. But they're asking Jesus a question to get him to answer it, to get him in trouble. They're being hypocritical in this scenario. I also want to talk for a minute about these, this pretend agnosticism. This is a plague today. Just like they said, we don't know, but they did know, right? They knew what they thought. They thought John the Baptist was an illegitimate guy, but they decided, 
we're just going to pretend we don't know because it's convenient for our current situation. And here, I think legitimate agnosticism, like where someone's like really struggling with the truth of Christianity or with the truth of the scripture or something where they're like, I really don't know. I want to know. I really don't know. That is a season that people will often uh, find themselves in, in our, in our modern day. Now, I think they could know, they should know and all that other stuff, right? But, but I understand why they say, I really honestly don't know. This is not that. This is pretend agnosticism. This is agnosticism as a veneer for not wanting to be honest about the evidence. And that is the kind of agnosticism that I think is terrible and is a plague on our culture. I see it all the time. I have seen countless times where individuals I'm counseling, talking with, encouraging, where they just say, um, I don't know, as a way of saying, yeah, it's probably true, but I don't want it. I don't know how to deny it because that was kind of a lot of good evidence for Christianity. So I'll just say I don't know. Um, I've told this story before, but I'll briefly mention. I talked to a guy who I was, he was part of my uh, domestic violence class. I, I used to be a domestic violence counselor, so I was meeting with abusers weekly. Uh, for They had to sit with me for two hours. Two hours every week, and we would talk about like uh, all sorts of things that were just meant to be awareness and confrontation about issues, moral issues. At any rate, and from a Christian perspective, actually. At any rate, um, the the guy, they were sentenced, by the way. The court made them come, 52 weeks of DV counseling. Uh, one of the guys that I had in the program, we, we had talked. I had given him evidence for Christianity. And then we were just chatting for like half an hour or so after the class, just me and him alone. Everyone had left. And I was talking to him about evidence for the resurrection and evidence from fulfilled prophecy and evidence for God independently and all these things. And, and he just says to me after all that, he says, you know, I don't know, Mike. It just doesn't feel like enough evidence to me. I just really want to have evidence for what I believe. I want to know it's true, you know, and I feel like that's just not enough evidence. And I thought to myself, this is pretend agnosticism. Um, I knew the guy. I wasn't just being judgmental. Like, I knew the guy. We talked a lot. So I thought, maybe I can help him see it too. And I said, well, what do you believe? What do you believe? And he says, well, I think that we get reincarnated. And I thought, there it is. Bingo. I got it. <laughs> and so I said, okay, you think we get reincarnated. Now, you seem to have a very, very high standard of evidence, right? Like I, I've talked about the resurrection of Christ, evidence for God, evidence for prophecy. And, and, and you say that's not enough evidence, even though you admit that's a lot of evidence, right? And he says, yes. I said, now, what evidence do you have for reincarnation? To which he said, I don't know. I've never thought about it. And there you go. Our will dictates what we believe more than the evidence. That's just the reality. Evidence helps. But a decision has to be made. And so they don't want to make that decision. They don't want to be open about it. They don't want to be honest about it. So they say, we don't know. And it's kind of like this um, slightly embarrassing uh, pretend agnosticism for them. So it's ironic. It's ironic. They ask him a question to get him in trouble with the honest answer. And then they won't answer honestly because it will get them in trouble. <laughs> uh, that's kind of funny. But the irony is not the only issue. Jesus is showing us here, and here's why I've titled the video, like, what if Jesus met the Pope, or how the Catholic Magisterium is a lot like the Sanhedrin. Jesus's answer to them is showing us God's response to those who claim the same kind of authority of succession from, from a, a legitimate leader like Moses with oral tradition that came down unwritten and that they're the, the controllers and deciders of, of the ability to interpret the Bible authoritatively and to sit in the seat of the, 
the um, the person who brought the word of God originally, and that is identical to Roman Catholic claims as far as I can tell. Papacy claiming their succession from Peter and the apostles, the papacy claiming that they have the authority to interpret the word of God, the papacy claiming they sit in the seat of Peter, the papacy claiming that they have an oral tradition that was unwritten that sort of floats around nebulously until they legitimize it in canons. And this is the traditional Catholic view. This is the, the historical Catholic view. Modern Catholic views would say, well, there may not have been like a real papacy papacy, but it existed in some like embryonic form in the first century. Well, this is just a rejection of the actual councils, right? Vatic read Vatican II. It's actually one of the shortest things you can read. It's Vatican II. Look at the claims about the first century papacy and look at the claims about what they say everyone knew in the early church. And then read history and you'll see that these claims are false. That's going to be the subject of an upcoming video as well. I just have a lot of homework to do because I want to make it a thoughtful, carefully vetted historical study and not uh, something off the cuff. So, yeah. I think the parallel's there. And I think my response is the same. I would look at the Pope and I would say, you have a responsibility to teach God's word. You don't have the authority that you claim you have, though. Now, how does this fit uh, into some of the overall study of Mark as the gospel? I just want to point out one last thing and then we're going to pray. Mark has subtle theology. This is so, so important that we understand. So many of the scholars who go way off the rails, and not all scholars do, just some of them do, right? They go way off the rails on the gospel of Mark is because they're not acknowledging his subtle theology. The subtle theology in Mark is a theme throughout the gospel of Mark from the first verse and I keep pointing it out, and I just want to remind us, it's hinted at very strongly in Jesus' response to these guys, right? Because his question is given. Where's John, John the Baptist's baptism? Where does that come from? And then it's interpreted as being understood as subtle theology in the next verses because they go, if we say it's from heaven, then the people, then he'll say, why didn't you believe him, right? Because they understand Jesus is giving subtle theology. My whole point here is I'm not doing some eisegesis when I look at the subtle teachings of, of Christ, compare it to the Old Testament and go, boom, look at the three-dimensional picture this is of how Jesus is God in the flesh. Like this is not um, unintended by the gospel. It's meant and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And um, we need to, that's why I'm taking so long to study Mark because it's just, there's so much incredible, neat, subtle, powerful moments that I want to unpack. So yeah. All right, that's it. Let's pray. Um, Lord God, we pray for wisdom in our lives. We pray for wisdom in the way we interact with things like Roman Catholicism or th those who would claim to have authority and, and want to, um, not just Roman Catholicism, but just like the social media mobs, <laughs> the, the, the cultural climate we find ourselves in where the stark and difficult sayings about the wrath and judgment of God, about the sin and wickedness of man, about the exclusivity and the needfulness of the cross of Jesus Christ, where these claims become offensive and we, we need spines. So we pray that we could follow Christ in having spines. We also pray we'd have that balance of following Jesus and having wit and wisdom so that we know when even we have a spine and we won't back down, we still might answer very cleverly. And that may, may um, allow us to preach, but to do so with wisdom so that we don't lose the open doors that we have. We pray for that wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you all so much for joining. This has been the Mark Study Part 44.
next week's part 45. Um, I will put out in, I guess maybe 45 will be a short little video on Mark 11:26 and and why it's got brackets and is it really does it belong, and what are the consequences of this discussion, and I think I'll just try to explain it real simply. Um, I also um, Friday's the Q and A, and I'm working on a video right now, kind of a side project, <laughs> on the Mirror Bible translation. The Mirror Bible is, I think it's the worst Bible I've ever seen, and by far. Um, and someone was like, worse than the Passion? I'm like, uh, yeah. Worse than the Jehovah's Witnesses? New World Translation? Yes. Um, I think it's the worst Bible I've ever seen. And I can't find anyone talking about it, like in a respectable, thoughtful way. So I'm going to be dealing with it very soon. And um, hopefully it'll be of benefit to individuals. So Lord bless you. Thank you so much for being here.